Thank you, Jake. Good morning, Christ City. Thanks for allowing me to be in your homes this morning. I feel privileged and honored that I get to open up God's Word for us this morning. So if you have a Bible, I do invite you to turn to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 to 27 is where we're going to be spending our time together. And so as you turn there, uh, let me read the passage for us. We'll also put it up on the screen, and then I'll too will pray for us. This is God's word to us this morning. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Father, we pray now that you would use your word Lord, that you would use your speaking to us to fan into flame our love for you. God, may we be overwhelmed by a sense of gratitude and appreciation and worship for who you are and what you've done for us. We pray these things in the very precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the question I want to answer this morning is, why did John write this letter? Why did John write 1 John? In his book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis examines and ponders the way a devil or the devil himself might try to deceive and destroy and ruin the life of a Christian and the church. In the letters, which are fictitious, Lewis writes from the perspective of a senior demon. His name is Screwtape. And Screwtape has been apprenticing, a discipling, if you will, a younger, up-and-coming demon named Wormwood. His idea is to try and train Wormwood to destroy the life of a young man. And so, Screwtape suggests a number of strategies. One, try to blind him to sin. Try and lull him into lukewarm complacency or help him chase after the 
world's pleasures. So why does John write his letter? Well, on one hand, he writes his letter because while C.S. Lewis's book is fictitious, the devil and his tactics are real. The devil does try and ruin you. And so John writes against lack of repentance. He says in 1 John 1, 8-9, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He writes against lukewarm complacency. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 1 John 2, 6. And he writes against the belief that the world can fully satisfy you. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. But the devil has one more weapon in his arsenal. He writes this. Listen to what Screwtape says. The young man, which they actually interestingly call the patient... The young man is now getting to know more Christians every day, and very intelligent Christians too. For a long time, it will be quite impossible to remove spirituality from his life. Very well then, we must corrupt it. Corrupt it. The world and the flesh have failed us, and yet a third power remains. And success of this third kind is the most glorious of all. A spoiled saint makes better sport in hell than a mere common tyrant or a debauchee. If someone already follows Jesus, will then corrupt him or her. Twist it, pervert it, distort the truth. If they believe in Jesus, will change the belief of that Jesus. Chains the Jesus they believe in. So why does John write his letter? Well, it's actually really helpful because John tells us. At the end of 1 John, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. I'm writing not so that you would know if you have eternal life, but I'm writing so that you would know, that you would know that you have eternal life. People will come and try and pull you away. They will try to deceive you. They'll give you a new Jesus, and you're going to wonder if you should believe in them. And John says, no, they're wrong. I'm writing to you so that you would know that right where you are, on that foundation you are standing on right now, you have eternal life. Stand firm. Don't move. You have eternal life. And so John's going to give us three things in our section this morning that are going to try and help our feet to sink down into the cement of truth. Firstly, he's going to give us distinctives. Then he's going to give us deceits. And thirdly, defenses. Look at the first one, distinctives. What is it that makes you different? 
Go back to verse 18. Children, now that's John's kind of word of endearment. It's his way of saying, I love you, church. I care about you. But that word children is probably also John's way of telling his church that they're vulnerable. They're vulnerable. Why are they vulnerable? He says, children, it is the last hour. Now, you might want to know, how is it that we are in the last hour? Was this not written almost 2,000 years ago? Well, yes. But John doesn't necessarily have a certain amount of time in mind, but rather a type of time in mind. He says this is a new type of age. There's something special about this age, and it's an age of increased intensity. What characterizes this last hour? Well, actually, we are introduced to this last hour or these last days in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, verse 17, we hear this. The Spirit has come. Peter stands up, and so he says this. He says, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So what is it that characterizes this last hour or this last days? Well, it's the fact that God's Spirit has come, that His Spirit has begun to indwell His followers. So the question remains then, how does this make us more vulnerable? Well, here's why. Because when Satan was defeated on the cross when God crushed the head of that wicked serpent by his death and resurrection. Satan decided he would go down swinging. He decided he would try and take as many down to the hell of pit with him as he possibly could. And so this age is characterized by, yes, increased good, but also by increased evil. So we read verse 18 again. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Now, I know you want me to tell you who the Antichrist is. And so I invite you, because I don't know, to email Jake, just with all your suggestions. You know, if you could just write separate emails for each of your hypotheses, that would be great. Trump, Gates, Netflix. But we don't know. The reality is, is the church has tried to guess multiple times over who the Antichrist is. They guessed it was Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini, the Pope. We don't know. They've all been wrong. But what we do know is that there will come someone, there will be someone who will try to oppose Christ and replace Christ. He will be the Antichrist. But immediately pressing for us, immediately relevant to us, is not this prototypical chief antichrist, but rather the antichrists, John tells us, that are already present in the world. There are many antichrists that have come. 
These individuals possess the same spirit as the Antichrist. And they too will try and come and try to lead people astray. We're going to look at how they try to lead people astray, but what's maybe most troubling for us right now is where they come from. Verse 19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. The problem is, is these antichrists have come from within the church. They served in kids' ministry. Everyone serves in kids' ministry in this church because we reproduce like rabbits. They got the Bible teaching. They were in this community group. They, they took communion on a Sunday, and they left. And so the problem is those who remain are wondering, did we miss something? Have we not seen something? Maybe they know something we don't know. Maybe they've experienced some special thing, and if I leave, I too can have that special thing. They feel uncertain. They feel curious. They're, they feel like they're standing on shaky ground. And so why did John write his letter? Stand firm. Don't move. Don't follow them. He says they're not of us. They are fundamentally different from us. If they really were with us, John says, they would have continued with us. And only those, you see, John says, who persevere to the end will be saved. How do I know, then, that I won't be deceived? How do you know that you won't be led astray? Well, John says, the thing that's different about them goes right to their heart. Look at verse 20. But you, you see, you're different than them because you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. John really wants to make the contrast here. Six times, I believe, if I counted correctly, he uses us language. And six times he uses them language. It's us and them. It's us and them. It's them and it's us. And what's different about us is that we have the anointing. Now that anointing is not some special ability or some special knowledge or power that only a select few Christians have. Rather, that anointing is the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is given to all Christians. All followers of Christ have been anointed by the Holy Spirit. And it's this Spirit that allows them to know. To know. Look at verse 21. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. So what is it that they know? What is it that we know? Well, helpful for us is the fact that John, in his gospel, also uses that same word, anointed. He uses that same word in John chapter 9. I want you to listen what happens there. Jesus is walking with his disciples across 
someone who was born blind. And one of the disciples asks him, Jesus, whose fault is this? This man must have sinned, right? Or, or if it wasn't his sin, it was his parents that have sinned. That, that's why he's born blind. And listen to what Jesus says. John 9, verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed, there's a word, he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and he came back seeing. But as it is the case, when John uses a miracle in his gospel. It has some other greater spiritual significance. So listen to the end of that passage. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they cast him out. They cast the blind man out, who now sees. They cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in God? Do you believe that God would have sent someone to save humanity? He said, who is he, sir? that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. That's what happens when we are anointed by God's Spirit. We see Jesus for who he really is. And we don't just see him. It's our seeing that leads to worship of him. We adore him. We praise him. God's anointing is what helps us see that Jesus is precious, that Jesus is the one I really need. We talk about the perseverance of the saints, that those who are in Christ will continue with Christ. It's only those who continue with Christ, who persevere to the end, that are truly saved. But I think we should talk rather about the preservation of the saints. Because it's God who preserves his saints. It's God who gives them the Holy Spirit so that they might see and continue seeing that Jesus is precious. I love the song, that says, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he would hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold, but he will hold me fast. Why did John write his letter? So, there's people who are distinct from you, but those people will also try to deceive you. So, our second point, the deceits. The deceits. Go back to 1 John. Look at verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. There is a certain type of teaching that is confronting the church that John is writing to. 
It's the teaching or the doctrine, this idea, this false idea of Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism is a lie that tried to separate Christ from Jesus. That word Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew equivalent Messiah. So they tried to separate the Messiah, God's anointed one, the one who would come and save sinful humanity. They tried to separate the Christ from Jesus. Sure, Gnosticism would affirm that Jesus was Christ, but only for a time. Most likely, they say, the spirit of the Christ was given to Jesus at his baptism. You see, Jesus was just a man, but God rested on him for a brief period of time. But then that spirit, that Christ, left Jesus most likely before he was about to be hung on the cross. Therefore, it wasn't the Messiah that died. It wasn't Christ that died. It wasn't God hanging on the cross. No, no, no. Jesus is not the Son of God. Jesus is not God. The incarnation, the coming of God as a human, did not happen. And so you don't actually need Jesus to have a relationship with God. I think John puts it succinctly in 2 John, verse 7. This is the heresy. He says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Now, we need to be careful here. It's not that all theologies, if they differ with you, are anti-Christ, right? Just because Sally might go around believing that infants should be baptized, which I don't think they should, doesn't make her the anti-Christ. It's okay to disagree on baptism, on end times theology, on gifts of the Holy Spirit, of what eldership should look like. Those secondary issues don't make you the antichrist. But when it comes to the person of Jesus, everything is at stake. If you disagree a little bit about who Jesus is, you are disagreeing about who God is, and you are disagreeing about how God saves the world. And so look at verse 23. That's why John says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. You deny who Jesus is, you don't have God. You accept who Jesus is, he belongs to you then. Gnosticism is not a first-century Palestinian problem. Gnosticism is very much alive in Vancouver today. There are many who would approve of Jesus. They would affirm much of Jesus, but also make him less than he truly is. 
So it is not uncommon to hear people say that, yes, they love that Jesus was a great teacher. They love that Jesus was a great moral example. They love in social reform Jesus. They love private Jesus. You know, if Jesus is good for you, if he helps you in your hard times, great. You can have your Jesus, but they do not agree with every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord Jesus. I think the greater problem, though, is that Gnosticism is still alive amongst those who proclaim to be Christians. It's actually a big problem today. Just so you know how big of a problem it is, in 2019, Amazon's greatest top-seller book in the category of Christology, of who Jesus is, and also in the category of Christian ethics, how Christians should live, was the book Universal Christ. Universal Christ, written by Richard Rohr. Maybe some of you have heard of him. According to 1 John, Richard Rohr is an antichrist. Now, my wife said I needed to say that gently because there may be some who feel nurtured by Richard Rohr. So let me say it gently. Richard Rohr is an antichrist. Richard Rohr, in his book about Christ, this universal Christ, does not one time in his massive book say that Jesus is God. Rather, you will hear the phrase that Christ is God. He writes this. Let me quote him. The Christ mystery is not a one-time event, but an ongoing process throughout time. Essentially, what Richard Rohr is saying is, I am Christ, you are Christ, we all are Christ. At the beginning of his book, Richard Rohr decides to dedicate his book to his dog, Venus, who was, I quote, Christ for him. Now, the only thing Richard Rohr has going for him is that he's not a cat person. If he was, he would be the Antichrist. But that is not cute. That is Antichrist. That teaching comes from the pit of hell. Listen to what he says then, if that is who the Christ is, who Jesus is. Listen to what that makes him believe about the cross. I quote, Jesus' death was God's great act of solidarity and not some bloody transaction required by God's offended justice in order to rectify the problem of sin. The cross was not there to solve the problem of sin. If there have ever been a time I would like to use two words that start with the letter B and the letter S, it is right now. That is absolutely baloney. It's a lie. And it's in the church right now. That's though what happens when you deny that Jesus is God. You no longer require that God pay the penalty that God requires. You see, when you pull on the thread of who Jesus is, the whole tapestry of Christianity falls to the ground. 
in preparation for this sermon, Jake said, look, Dan, you have a hunting license. You have a hunting license. Go out and find those false teachers. And you need to hear your pastor's heart in that. He doesn't want you to be deceived. He doesn't want you to be led astray. And while I would do that, while I would like to go hunting, I think I need to remember here, why does John write his letter? He writes this letter for you. It's for you who believe that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Christ, that you would know that you have eternal life. Hold fast to your confession that Jesus is the Christ. So they're distinct. They deceive. But we've been given, thirdly, a defense. We've been given a defense. There's two ways that John says we can stand against, press back against the false teachings of the Antichrist. There's actually two imperatives in our passage, two commands that John gives us. The first one is in verse 24 and 25. Here's the first one. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. This thing that John's church heard from the beginning was the gospel. It was the good news about who Jesus is. It was the good news about how Jesus came to save the world. Now, John's church would have heard this message. But we've been given the written message. We have the word. We have the Bible. And so if the devil is going to try and change who Jesus is, then we need to know who Jesus is. And we know it through the Bible. Look, Bible reading is not for some junior varsity Christian. The Bible is not for some middle school Christian, for some new up-and-coming Christian. No, the Bible is for every Christian every day of every age. This is what we have. This is our sword. And the Bible is not something we should turn to occasionally. It's not something we use just when things are really rough, when we feel like we're slipping away. No, John says, abide in it. Abide in it. Rest in it. Sit in it. We're to study the Bible. We're to read the Bible. We're to memorize the Bible. Spurgeon said, when you cut me, I bleed Bible. That's what we need. We're to abide in this. It's how we know who our God is. I fear today that we are more Athenian than Berean. Now, what do I mean by that? In Acts chapter 17, we're given two contrasting cultures, the cultures of the Athenians and the cultures of the Bereans. Listen to how Paul distinguishes them just a few verses apart. Acts 17, 21 says this, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling 
or hearing something new. It's all about something new. But listen to how Paul describes the Bereans. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and they described the word with all eagerness. They received the word with all eagerness, examining, examining the scriptures, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. You see, my fear is that we would get caught up in these latest trends and these movements of the latest thoughts of these new spiritual insights that are supposed to change your life when rather we should examine that which we already have. We are inherently, as Christians, conservative. We do not drift away from that which we received in the beginning. We are rooted. We stand firm on the word of God. Why did John write his letter? But secondly, not only are we to abide in the word, we are to abide in him. Look at verses 26 and 27. It says, I write these things things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Now, John's not saying there that you don't need any sort of teaching whatsoever. He would be contradicting himself. He's teaching, in fact, his church by this letter. What he's seeing, he's saying, you don't need anything new. You don't need anything new in order to abide in him. You don't need anything new to receive the anointing of the Spirit and abide in Christ. But then when he says this, he says, but as is his, as is his anointing teaches you about everything and is true, and so no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Abide in the word and abide in him. See, the devil knows that he can still corrupt someone who is in the Word. What you do is you turn Bible reading into a pursuit of knowledge. You turn Bible reading into a theological exercise, and you make Jesus impersonal and distant. Listen again to how Screwtape, that elder demon, teaches his demonic protege. He says, Our third aim is to destroy the devotional life. For the real presence of the enemy, otherwise experienced by men in prayer and sacrament, we substitute a merely probable, remote, shadowy, and uncouth figure, one who spoke a strange language and died a long time ago. Such an object cannot, in fact, be worshipped. See, we don't just read the Bible for itself. We read the Bible to know Jesus. We read the Bible for relationship with Jesus. We read in order to cherish, to worship. We we push against knowledge. We suck on knowledge until we're satisfied with who our Savior is. And it's then when we're satisfied in Christ, when we've cherished him, when Jesus is precious to us, that we say, I don't want to leave. I don't need to follow you because all I have is right here. 
I already have eternal life. Let me end with a story. There was a famous and brilliant painter who used to love painting with his son. Except then the First World War happened, and his son was sent away. And after the war, that painter, the father, heard a knock on his door. It was another soldier. The soldier explained that he was good friends with his son. He explained that he knew the father loved to paint with his son, and his son has actually tried to teach him himself how to do a little painting. And so he painted a picture of his son. It wasn't very good, but he thought that the man should have it because his son had died. His son had died actually trying to save his life. And so the father, very grateful and appreciative, took the painting. He was right. It it wasn't anything special. It was quite ordinary, in fact. But it meant a lot to the father to have this memory of who his son was. A little later, the old man dies. The painter dies. And because he was a brilliant artist, he was going to auction off his works of art. So this happened to be at a famous auction house. A lot of wealthy collectors had come in order to try and acquire some of these paintings. But before the auction started, the auctioneer read a letter. And the letter said that the first painting that would be sold was a picture of his son. So they unraveled the picture, the painting of his son, and everyone in the crowd scoffed. They laughed. It it was so ordinary. It was so elementary. No one wanted that picture. And so the auctioneer began, who will give me $1,000? Who, who, okay, who will give me $500? And out of no one, nowhere, someone says, I will have it. I will buy the picture. It was the soldier. The soldier had made his way into the crowd. He says, I will have it. Look, you can have all that I brought. Have all the money I have on me. Please, though, just give me that painting of that man. I want the picture of the son. And so the auctioneer slams down his gavel, sold, gives the man the painting. And then he says, auction over. What? There's, there's outrage in the crowd. Everyone's there to buy the rest of the works of our what? What about the other paintings? And then the auctioneer opens up a letter, and it's the father's will. And it reads, Whoever will take my son gets it all. Whoever will take my son gets it all. That's Christianity. That's why John wrote his letter. Let me pray for us. Father, we want to know your son. God, we thank you that we have the power to know your son. Lord, that by your spirit, by your anointing, Lord, you would reveal and open up our eyes to your glorious son. Father, I pray 
that having the Son would be the most precious thing in our lives. God, I pray for this church. Please help us to not get caught up in lies, in deceits, in vain pursuits, Lord. Instead, help us to stand firm, to not move, and to trust in the fact that you have already given us eternal life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.